is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor Medicine Cases. We've got a new EM Quick Hit series, and this time it's on wilderness medicine with doctors Justin Hensley and Aaron Billen. So we thought we'd create a little sort of intro podcast to tell you about the vision and purpose of this Quick Hit series. So welcome back, Dr. Hensley, and welcome to EM Cases, I think for the first time, Dr. Billen. It is the first time. Good to be here. Glad to be here, mate. Right on. So actually, first, Dr. Bill, and since you're new to EM cases, do you mind just telling us a little bit about your professional background and how you got into wilderness medicine in the first place? Sure. I'm uh, currently working as the emergency department medical director in Powell, Wyoming, director of VMS there. I was introduced to wilderness medicine by a faculty member when I did residency at St. Mark's Hospital in Salt Lake City. So it's been about 25, going on 30 years I've been involved in wilderness medicine eventually led to being president of the Wilderness Medical Society for a short while, and uh, I've remained involved ever since, still involved in search and rescue in, in Wyoming. Fantastic. And Dr. Hensley? Yeah, so I got exposed to wilderness medicine in medical school in Tennessee and kind of continued on in residency. And Dr. Bill and I's paths overlapped as I got my fellow while he was president and fellow of the Academy of Wilderness Medicine. And that worked out really well because I created a wilderness med student rotation in South Texas where I was faculty, and now I'm in Australia continuing to do pre-hospital care as well. Great. And before we get into the vision and purpose of this podcast, why don't you just tell us your most crazy-ass wilderness medicine story? I would have to say that in our search and rescue season in Wyoming, uh, which peaks during the hunting season when people are hunting elk and deer and antelope, we've had a spike in grizzly bear attacks. And probably the most interesting story is our pagers went off and we got activated for a downed aircraft that was about 30 miles from, from Cody, which is the county seat for the county. We all showed up the hall and someone had typed the tail number of the airplane in and found that that airplane had actually just landed in Hawaii. So it turns out that this was a hiker using an, an ELT decades old that was still registered to an airplane and never been changed. So we sent some crews out to drive as close as we can, and then, and then we met a helicopter there who flew us up to his, this hiker's base camp. And then a helicopter coming from Sublet County, Wyoming, to our airport to assist, happened to fly directly over him. And he waved at him, and they circled so they knew he saw him, but they didn't have enough fuel to land and pick him up, so they proceeded on to the airport, picked up three other search and rescue members from Park County, and then went back. And it was only when they disembarked from the helicopter after landing that they found out that he had been a serious bear mauling. And uh, the bear had surprised him above treeline when he was peak bagging and had taken big chunks out of his thighs, both thighs, his left forearm. And we basically got to him about five hours after this happened. 
And so the EMT that was on scene, I was about a thousand feet lower in elevation where he had spent the night where we found his bivy sack. But they put a tourniquet on, they uh, bundled him up, and they flew him down to our helibase, which was uh, ab- about 2,000 feet lower, where he met a medical helicopter and was flown out. So that's, the, that's probably the third major bear attack that we've seen this fall during the hunting season. Well, so there's no paucity of adventure stories I'm sure you guys have. That's just one of them. I guess that's one of the great things about wilderness medicine is that it is exciting and it keeps you on your toes and you never know what you're going to get next. It's like emergency medicine taken to the next level. Like a shift in the ER, right? (laughs) (laughs) And Dr. Hensley, what's your most crazy ass story? You know, it's always a, a toss-up between the the shark bite in Fiji and uh, really the one that was the most weird, I suppose, was the supremely profoundly hypothermic patient we had in South Texas, which, you know, just boggles the mind. You know, you think of it as being hot, but this guy had just flipped his boat and was underwater, in the water for probably two hours before he got washed onto a one of the barrier islands that was uninhabited and not connected to the mainland. And so he was out there for about eight more hours overnight and the Coast Guard helicopter picked him up. And if you're not aware of the U.S. Coast Guard, they're fabulous at protecting the coastline. They just do not hire medical professionals. And so they are essentially a very expensive, brightly painted helicopter taxi. And so he was delivered to us without any other care except the nice itchy wool U.S. Coast Guard blanket. And in his core temperature was 25, which is the lowest we'd ever seen at that hospital. Holy cow. Yeah. And then because it's not common, and thankfully I was on because all the other people were like, okay, so we're going to put in bilateral chest tubes and do intrathoracic lavage and bladder lavage and all the other kind of classical hypothermia treatments that we know really don't work anymore. And so it was really interesting. uh, Some of the pitfalls that we had, you know, nobody really identified the fact that he was hypoglycemic and that's why his GCS didn't recover as quickly as his temperature. And, you know, it it was a big learning experience that made you realize that you need to know these things, even if you don't work somewhere that you're that common. All right. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder whether, you know, Ontarians should be going down to Texas and teaching them about how to take care of hypothermic patients and Texans should teach the Ontarians how to take care of heat stroke patients. (laughs) All right. So let's get into what this EM Quick Hit series is going to be about. First of all, you know, why should the urban ED doc really care about wilderness and medicine? What, What can we learn from wilderness medicine? I'll take a stab at that one first. I really think there's some great corollaries in wilderness medicine for the for the not only the ED doc but the doc anywhere. There's a few things that wilderness medicine really teaches that it, it teaches us to improvise more often, and it teaches us to do more with less. And I think that's a really important principle when resources are getting scarce because of the pandemic and other factors, learning to do more and give outstanding care with less is becoming more and more important. I think that's an important lesson from wilderness medicine. Yeah. And uh, to echo on that, it's so for me doing global medicine and austere medicine with disaster response and other things, it is. It's, it's the knowledge of having a plan A, but also having a plan B through double Z in the back of your mind of if not this, then what's the next reasonable step and knowing the the common things and how to, how to take care of the simple stuff without needing to do a Fourier transform MRI of the ankle to make sure that, you know, which ligament is sprained or whatever. It's just, you know, some things we overdo in clinical medicine and 
some things we just don't know because we don't know. And it really helps broaden our knowledge base, but it also broadens our ability to treat those diseases and conditions. It teaches us to really rely upon those those things us old school doctors learned in medical school, like auscultation and physical examination. And I really think that the pandemic was tough on everybody. And I have seen so many people get involved in Wilson Medicine, become passionate about it. And it is their best inoculation, I think, against burnout, is finding something they're passionate about that's still related to what they do for a living. Absolutely. It's interesting, the crossover between global EM that you mentioned, Dr. Hensley, and wilderness EM and rural EM, because there's a bit of overlap there, but they all share the same feature in that you're doing more with less. I think for anyone who's practiced in any of those fields, there's a lot to learn. And that's partly why on EM cases, we're having a wilderness medicine quick hit series, a rural medicine quick hit series, and a global medicine quick hit series. And I think that theme will come out quite often. Now, you know, the two stories that you guys told about wilderness medicine seem to me to be pretty classic kind of stories, being mauled by a bear, hypothermia. What are some of the common myths? Like any med school multiple guest test, the thing that people really put a lot of emphasis on are the really rare things and the really common things they just gloss over. And so in wilderness medicine, you're going to see probably 90 ankle sprains for every one animal injury. So learning these bizarre toxidromes or austere treatments of fungal ingestion injuries and other stuff, you you see ankle sprains, you see dehydration, you see sunburns, you see UV iriditis, you see all kinds of things that are common. It used to be in wilderness medicine that the thing to do in wilderness medicine training was to improvise femoral traction for a femur fracture. And they spent the majority of many courses for people building femoral traction out of ski poles and hockey sticks and snowshoes and all kinds of things. And then we realized that femoral traction really doesn't matter all that much. And and that time is better spent in the more fundamental issues. Yeah. I, I suppose you're really forced to think about what really matters in your management of patients. Exactly. In terms of what we're planning to do for this EM Quick Hit series, just generally, what were you hoping that the audience would get out of this series? For me, I hope they a, get an understanding about what wilderness medicine is and isn't. You know, so yes, like again, the sexy stuff is what they hear about, but what they really need to know is the basics. And secondly, while we do talk about improvisation as a key aspect of wilderness medicine, it's still not making stuff up. It's coming up with a logical idea to fit in this situation that works best. And, you know, going back to the keep it simple, stupid philosophy. So as in Dr. Billen's case with the femoral traction, we learned that just buddy taping the legs together works as well at splinting and is a whole lot easier. And so do an easy thing, a simple thing, but don't make, you know, cricothyrotomy kits out of bladder valves and other tools that aren't designed for that. It's really, it's doing the best you can. Or big pens. Right. Yes. One thing I think people should be able to gather from this is that there is so much for traditional medicine to learn from the principles developed through wilderness medicine. Doing more, not just doing more with less, but doing it well with less. And for a lot of people I know, and, and I know for Justin, it's become a lifelong passion and uh, as a really fulfilling part of their career. Fantastic. Well, my hope from this series is that uh, we'll not only give 
the listeners some great tips and tricks and pearls and pitfalls of clinical medicine, but also, like you were saying before, Dr. Billen, to, to inspire them to do something a little bit different, to keep their interest in emergency medicine, and to prevent burnout. You know, certainly nurses have had a massive exodus from emergency medicine over the last uh, couple of years, and it's starting with emergency physicians as well. I think wilderness medicine is the perfect kind of field that can be combined very nicely with emergency medicine to prevent burnout. Well said, Anton. Excellent. Well, I'm excited, gentlemen. Can you give us a a few hints of what your first couple of quick hits are going to be, what the audience has to look forward to? There are some topics that people will see in their emergency departments that are true wilderness medicine topics, the hypothermic patient, the drowning victim, things like that. And those cross the, the border into suburban and urban medicine too. So those are some topics I think we should cover early. Yeah. And then for the people that are kind of really just being introduced to it, what goes in your pack? So if you're just going out hiking with buddies versus going actually for an expedition doctor versus just being in town, you know, what what do you carry on you that allows you to do austere medicine wherever you are, whether it be in the parking garage in Houston, Texas, or it's out in the big piney forest? That just reminds me that uh, I recently bought a blaze orange hat for going up to Georgian Bay, which is north of Toronto, where I own a cottage, because there are some people who hunt around there, and I certainly don't want to be mistaken for a deer. And then the other day, I was walking in downtown Toronto at night, and there is a lot of traffic down there, and there's a lot of angry people, it seems, after COVID especially. (laughs) And... uh, now I wear my blaze orange hat in downtown Toronto as well, and I feel safer. <laughs> Not traditionally on the list yep. of the 10 essentials, but it makes sense, Anton. Works in downtown Toronto. All right, gentlemen. I look forward to your EM quick hits, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it. Next up, we have a new-ish guest, a colleague at North York General and the co-author of our Q&A Pearl of the Week email blast that you sign up for free on the subscribe button on the EM Cases website, Dr. Alicia Targonsky, who we are now going to feature as part of our Best of University of Toronto EM Quick Hit series. He's going to present a great case. Take it away, Dr. Targonsky. And now for the best of University of Toronto Emergency Medicine. A woman in her 60s arrives to your ED by EMS with an altered level of consciousness. While being triaged in the EMS offload area, the patient begins to seize. She's rushed to the recess bay where IV access is established and the patient is hooked up to a monitor. Fortunately, before nurses are about to administer a dose of lorazepam, the seizure stops. Aside from some mild tachycardia, vital signs are otherwise unremarkable. However, the patient remains altered. Paramedics and the patient's husband are present to provide some additional history. This woman's past history includes hypothyroidism on levothyroxine and hypertension treated with ramipril and hydrochlorothiazide. She had a colonoscopy just three hours ago and arrived home before going to sleep. However, an hour later, the patient was very somnolent, so an ambulance was called. Interestingly, she was feeling completely well until the night before when she began her picosalax bowel prep prior to today's procedure. She gradually felt progressively more nauseated and weaker, in addition to having many trips to the washroom with loose bowel movements. 
She then started vomiting throughout the night. Although she was feeling weak in the morning, she managed to get to the colonoscopy and undergo the procedure. Post-op, she was afebrile and had no complaints of abdominal pain, no headaches or fevers, there were no recent falls or head injuries, and nobody else at home was unwell with similar symptoms. So you ask yourself, what could be the cause of this patient's altered level of consciousness? Why did she become so acutely altered and now seizing in the emergency department? Fortunately for you and your patient, your colleague at the bedside is one of the rare ED docs who have seen a case like this before. They order a bolus of hypertonic saline, 150 mils IV, to treat this suspected case of acute hyponatremia. Sure enough, the patient perks up over the next 10 minutes and becomes oriented to place and time. Approximately 30 minutes later, the patient's labs return and her sodium is 116. So what exactly happened to this patient? This was a case of bowel prep hyponatremia. Wait, what? You heard me right. I said bowel prep hyponatremia. Interestingly, acute severe hyponatremia, secondary to bowel preps, has been reported in the literature. A quick lit search on PubMed will yield a handful of case reports describing this very phenomenon. A Lancet article from 2001 looked at the incidence of hyponatremia in patients after colonoscopy, with 7.5% of patients showing low sodium in addition to elevated ADH levels. Why does this happen? It seems that it's due to a combination of factors. Physiologic stress from doing the PrEP likely triggers non-osmotic ADH release, signaling water retention. GI volume losses probably plays a part as well, especially if there's associated nausea and vomiting, which are likely triggered by the falling serum sodium levels. But probably equally important is the low solute intake due to dietary restriction preceding the colonoscopy, essentially a tea and toast diet, and the massive amount of free water intake while prepping for the procedure, which results in a dilutional hyponatremia. Risk for hyponatremia is especially high if water intake is a large volume over a short period of time. Bowel prep hyponatremia may occur with any bowel preps, including PEG and picosalax. It also seems to happen more frequently in women. And from my review of the case reports, use of thiazide diuretics and concomitant hypothyroidism appears to be fairly common. So when is management of acute hyponatremia required? Intervention is indicated if there is severe acute alteration in mental status with coma and or seizures. Failure to treat can lead to worsening neurologic status, permanent brain damage, or even death. The appropriate intervention is a stat administration of 3% hypertonic saline. If you recall episode 60 of EM cases, it should be given as a bolus of 100 to 150 mils of fluid over 5 to 10 minutes, although some guidelines will recommend over 20 minutes. It should be repeated once or twice as needed to abort seizures or reverse acutely depressed level of consciousness. Repeat serum sodium levels should be drawn after administration of hypertonic saline. Other fluids that are running should be stopped so as to avoid raising the sodium even more. This means lock off the IV. If 3% saline is unavailable, an amp or two of sodium bicarbonate given over 5-10 to 10 minutes delivers approximately the same amount of sodium. So what else needs to be done to safely manage this patient? A Foley catheter should be placed ASAP for accurate monitoring of urine output as free water diuresis is one of the main mechanisms of action for hypertonic saline. Close monitoring of urine output is essential. Frequent checks on serum electrolytes will help ensure that you do not correct sodium too rapidly or overshoot your target. Our emergency medicine cases experts in episode 60 suggested not to exceed an increase of 6 millimoles per liter over 6 hours in your patients with severe symptoms. 
though a recent JAMA review in 2022 recommends aiming for an increase of 4 to 6 millimoles over the first two hours, and no more than 10 over 24 hours. One important point is that the use of hypertonic saline should really be restricted to those with acute or severely symptomatic hyponatremia, with seizures or coma. Resist the temptation and be sure to avoid intervening with hypertonic saline for patients with mildly altered mental status due to chronic hyponatremia, as rapid correction can lead to the dreaded complication of central pontine myelinolysis, or more currently known as osmotic demyelination syndrome. So why did I share this case with you? The truth is, you probably have never seen a case of bowel prep hyponatremia, and chances are you may never see one in your whole career. But now you know about it, and I'm hoping that you will be able to act fast when you see an acutely altered patient who has spent the last 24 hours prepping for a colonoscopy. This way, if you are confident with your suspected diagnosis, you don't need to wait 30 to 60 minutes for the serum sodium levels to return from the lab before you give a bolus or two of hypertonic saline for this rare but well-recognized life-threatening emergency. Thanks so much for that great review on bowel prep hyponatremia, Dr. Targonsky, and an update on how and when to give hypertonic saline for severe hyponatremia. And talking about seizures and altered LOA, next up we have Britt Long on some insights into the oh-so-challenging diagnosis of a non-convulsive status epilepticus. But before we get into non, but before we get into NCSE, just a reminder that we have the entire main stage program of the EM Cases Summit 2023 available for video streaming at emcasesummit.com. When you buy your streaming package, you also get all the previous summit talks and the ebook summary of all the talks for quick review. There were some mind-blowing talks from Dave Carr, from Sarah Reed, Anand Swaminathan, Catherine Varner, Walter Himmel, Scott Weingart, Sarah Fui, Tarlin Hadiati, and many, many more. We also did a panel discussion called Fixing EM with three legend leaders in emergency medicine, Grant Innes, Howard Evans, and Paul Atkinson, where we offered a whole slew of practical solutions to the current EM and healthcare crisis. All right, now on to the oh-so-elusive, non-convulsive status epilepticus. EMS calls with a priority one alert. They are bringing you a 46-year-old female who is actively seizing. The patient arrives with a GCS of three, but no apparent motor activity. EMS states that she was found by family about 30 minutes ago actively seizing. When the EMS crew arrived, they found the patient to have generalized tonic-clonic movements. The initial blood glucose was normal, so they administered 10 milligrams of midazolam IM. After about 5 minutes, she was still seizing, so they gave her another 10 milligrams. The generalized movements then stopped, and they were able to obtain IV access. The patient is on seizure medications, but the crew is unsure of the exact ones. You thank them for their report, and you start your secondary survey with the head. You open her eyes, and you find rapid beating nystagmus to the right, but there's no other motor activity. This is a case of non-convulsive status epilepticus. First, let's just talk about what this is. Status epilepticus has two forms. The first one is convulsive status with prominent motor activity. We all know what this looks like. The second form is non-convulsive status 
where there's a change in cognition or mental processes with no significant convulsive activity. The electrographic definition includes abnormalities on EEG for at least 10 continuous minutes, or there's intermittent seizure activity for over 20% of an hour on EEG. There is an electroclinical definition that incorporates some EEG abnormalities plus clinical manifestations, but either way, in many cases, we're not going to be able to make the official diagnosis in the ED. Non-convulsive status is extremely challenging for a couple reasons. When we look at the overall numbers, non-convulsive status accounts for almost 47% of all cases of status epilepticus, and it might be present in up to 30% of patients who are altered. Most cases are due to inadequately treated convulsive status, like in my case, but there are many other causes, acute brain injury, a structural lesion, infection, encephalopathy, even medications and chronic alcohol use. Now, we don't have great data on mortality. The underlying cause of the patient's non-convulsive status is probably the most important factor in determining the patient's outcome but mortality can reach up to 50% depending on the study, and almost half of patients can have a persistent neurologic deficit. Most patients with non-convulsive status present with subtle signs and symptoms. By far, the most common presentation is some change in mental status, and it might be the only finding. Other findings that should increase your suspicion are abnormalities with the eyes, like gaze deviation, nystagmus, or even eyelid twitching. These all have a specificity over 85%. Changes in speech, like aphasia, can occur in about 15% of cases. Lip smacking and motor twitching of the face or the distal extremities, like the hands, are also clues but their specificity is less than 40%. There are many other findings like hypertension, flushing, diaphoresis, catatonia, even repeated crying or laughing with no other response to stimulation. With all of this, think about non-convulsive status in patients with altered mental status and abnormal ocular movements lip smacking or subtle twitches in the face or the extremities, or a medication history with an anti-epileptic. Also think about this in patients with some cerebral pathology, a patient who was seizing, they were treated, but they're not coming out of their postictal state, and in patients with unexplained altered mental status, but there's no other cause despite testing. The key for us in the ED is just considering this condition and then treating the patient. If you're thinking non-convulsive status is likely, look for those life threats, check a serum glucose, and obtain neuroimaging. The patient will need an EEG at some point, but again, your job is just thinking about this disease. The first-line treatment will be a benzo. 
if the patient's mental status improves with the benzo, that can be diagnostic. But if the patient does not improve with the benzo, administer another seizure medication like levetiracetam and then get ready for intubation with a sedative like propofol or ketamine. Let's get back to my patient. We administered 4 milligrams of IV lorazepam and 4.5 grams of IV levetiracetam, but her nystagmus continued. At that point, we decided it was time for ketamine and some airway protection. Once we had the medications and the ketamine on board, her eye movements finally stopped. Big takeaway, keep non-convulsive status on your differential in that altered patient and always look at the eyes, the face, and the extremities. If you're thinking non-convulsive status, give benzos. Thank you so much, Dr. Long. So the bottom line there is when it comes to the diagnosis of non-convulsive status epilepticus, scrutinize the eyes for any abnormalities. If they have fluttering eyelids or gaze deviation or nystagmus or what have you, and their GCS is in the boots, they very well might be a non-convulsive status epilepticus. And then if you give a decent dose of a benzodiazepine and they wake up, you've essentially nailed the diagnosis. Next up, we have our traumatology expert, the one and only Dr. Andrew Petrosoniak, otherwise known as Petro, who's going to be talking about morel lavely lesions. Hi. Today's topic is a little less conventional, but hopefully just as educational. Let's start with the case. Actually, two. First, a 50-year-old male is brought to the ED. He's a driver in a high-speed MVC T-bone collision. There's substantial damage to the driver's side. He's hemodynamically stable in GCS-15. He has chest and abdominal pain. His pelvis is stable and as fast as negative. But given the mechanism, he undergoes a PAN scan. The radiologist notes on CT there's no intra-abdominal and intrathoracic injuries, but he does note a morel lavalle lesion on the patient's left upper thigh on the pelvis CT. You've never heard of this finding and are uncertain whether it's clinically relevant. You re-examine the patient note to a large fluctuant mass on the patient's upper thigh. There's no overlying skin changes, but it is quite tender and you wonder whether anything needs to be done regarding this lesion. On your same shift, a 60-year-old female presents with right thigh pain and swelling. It's been progressive for the last month and worsened in the last few days. It all started after she fell through a backyard deck that had rotted out. She landed on her right thigh. On examination, she had edema, tenderness, and erythema of the right thigh. There was no vascular compromise, and the area of the thigh was fluctuant, Given this, he ordered an ultrasound, which reported a subcutaneous fluid collection that the radiologist indicated as suspicious for a morale lavalet lesion. Perhaps the radiologist is just messing with you, making up diagnoses you've never even heard of, since you now have two patients on the same shift with a diagnosis of morale lavalet. Well, let's talk about what this is, the diagnosis, and the treatment. First, what is a morale lavalet lesion, and how does it happen? These lesions are closed degloving injuries, usually caused by high-energy trauma to the soft tissues resulting in detachment of the subcutaneous tissues from the deep fascia. More specifically, the trauma, shearing forces cause deep structures to go one direction, 
meaning the bone, the muscle, the deep fascia, and then the superficial structures like the fat, fascia, and skin to go in an opposite direction. This leads to vessels and lymphatic structures to tear, leading to a potential space filled with hemolymphatic and serotic fluid and ultimately a cavity formation. Sometimes a pseudocapsule can form and that ultimately prevents reabsorption. Interestingly, most typically these lesions present hours to days, but a third will present months and years later, and the patient may not even recall the traumatic event. Overall, these are quite rare, so unlike this hypothetical shift where two present on the same day, it's far more likely that you may see one every few years. Why do these matter? Well, these lesions don't immediately cause an issue, at least typically, but if they go untreated, it can cause several issues, including pressure necrosis, compartment syndrome, or infection. This infected fluid can also lead to cellulitis or osteomyelitis, and then rarely necrotizing fasciitis or sepsis. How are they diagnosed? Well, these lesions can occur on various locations on the body, with more than 75% occurring around the greater trochanter, thigh, pelvis, gluteal regions. The rest occur near the knee in about 15% of cases, and rarely the abdomen, lower leg, or low back. The diagnosis is usually suspected based on a history of trauma and clinical findings, including a fluctuant mass, edema, and tenderness at the site. There may also be an overlying cellulitis from the initial dermal injury. However, imaging really is required for a definitive diagnosis. In the literature, MRI is the preferred modality. However, most practically in, in Canadian centers, it's far more likely the lesion is diagnosed on ultrasound or CT. In acute trauma, like the first case we discussed, the lesion is usually found on CT, whereas in chronic cases, it may be a bit more likely for them to be found on ultrasound as you identify the fluid collection. While the data isn't great, it's estimated that up to a third are missed acutely, with patients presenting weeks and months later, when these collections kind of form in a more organized way. For the polytrauma patient, it's really not an issue to miss these initially and focus on the more acute injuries and findings. The relevance of the diagnosis is highest once it's actually diagnosed, and especially if it's symptomatic. Finally, what are the treatment options? Once it's diagnosed, it does really require a surgical opinion. Depending on your institution, local resources, and protocols, it's frequently managed by plastic surgery or general surgery. If there are concomitant underlying fractures, then orthopedics are also often involved. The importance of treatment is highlighted in studies demonstrating delays in diagnoses leading to worse outcomes. In one study, return to work was three to four times longer with non-operative treatment compared to those who had an intervention. But there are several other factors that may influence outcome, including comorbidities, presence of other injuries, and really the size of the lesion. There's no accepted guidelines for the management of these lesions, which has resulted in some degree of variability in practice, but broadly, management can be categorized into three options or streams. Number one, conservative management with a compressive dressing. Often these are used for smaller lesions or patients who aren't suitable for more substantial intervention. Number two, a minimally invasive approach that includes aspiration, and these are for patients who often fail conservative measures. Occasionally drainage catheters are left and sclerosing agents can be injected. And finally, number three, an open surgical approach. These are typically for larger or more chronically and well-developed lesions with pseudocapsules. 
It's also used for more complicated situations, including severe infection. So that's it, morel lavalet lesions. Back to our two cases. The first, acute presentation in the 50-year-old male involved in the MVC, was treated with aspiration followed by compression. The second, the subacute presentation required open surgical treatment. In summary, these lesions are rare, but important closed degloving injuries that typically occur in the thigh and gluteal region. Their relevance is related to potential complications, including infection, compartment syndrome, and the development of chronic collections. For the emergency physician, the most important aspect is really understanding that once it's diagnosed, it does require a surgical opinion. You're about to see your next patient in the ED and see in the chart that they have a pacemaker. What's your approach to the ECG in the patient? Pacemaker ECGs can cause anxiety because there's so much going on. There's potentially an intrinsic rhythm and a pace rhythm. There can be a YQRS complex and ST&T wave changes. There could be a mechanical or an electrical problem with the pacemaker. Or the pacemaker could be totally unrelated to the patient's presentation. To try to overcome my own anxiety when it comes to pacemakers, I've come up with a mnemonic pacer as a simple but systematic approach to pacemaker patients. The first three questions assess the pacemaker in relation to the patient. P stands for pacemaker spikes. Are they present and appropriate? Normal pacemaker spikes can be appropriately absent if there's a normal intrinsic rhythm or appropriately present, either intermittently or fully paced. Abnormalities include inappropriately absent pacemaking in a patient who needs it. This is failure to pace, which could be caused by battery depletion or oversensing and can be differentiated by applying a magnet. Or inappropriately present pacing, such as pacemaker-mediated tachycardia, also treated by magnet, or failure to sense. This brings us to the second question, related to whether the spikes are appropriate, which is the question of sensing. A stands for awareness. Is a pacemaker aware of, or does it sense, the intrinsic rhythm? A normal pacemaker will be aware of the intrinsic rhythm and therefore inhibit pacing, and it will sense a lack of intrinsic rhythm and deliver appropriate pacing. Abnormalities include oversensing, where pacemakers respond to stimuli other than a pacemaker, like muscle contractions, and inappropriately inhibit pacing, or undersensing, where the pacemaker is oblivious to the intrinsic beat, for example, because of a lead migration away from the heart, and therefore delivers inappropriate pacing. In other words, oversensing leads to underpacing, and undersensing leads to overpacing. If the pacemaker is pacing and is aware, the next question is whether or not this has any impact on the heart. So C stands for capture. If there are pacer spikes, do they trigger depolarization? In a normal pacemaker, every pacemaker spike is followed by a beat, whereas a spike without an accompanying beat is a failure to capture, which could be a mechanical problem or a metabolic problem. We've now gone through the three main pacemaker functions, pacing, awareness or sensing, and capture. This can identify three forms of pacemaker malfunction in relation to the patient. In failure to pace, there is inappropriate lack of pacemaker spikes. In failure to sense, there is inappropriately delivered pacemaker spikes. And in failure to capture, there are spikes that are not followed by any beats. But assessing the rhythm strip is just the start of ECG interpretation, including for paced rhythms. 
So E stands for ECG. What else do you see on the 12 lead? There are two time-sensitive emergencies that you might see on a paced ECG. First, hyperkalemia can further widen QRS complexes and is an important cause of pacemaker malfunction that can be quickly stabilized with calcium. Second, whereas STEMI criteria doesn't apply in paced rhythms, the modified Scarboza criteria can identify occlusion MI in paced rhythms that have a left bundle branch block morphology. This includes concordant ST elevation, concordant ST depression in anterior leads, or excessive discordance defined as ST elevation greater than 25% of the preceding S wave. Finally, R stands for the rest of the patient. Do they have a mechanical complication related to pacemaker insertion, like lead perforation or infection? Or do they have an emergency totally unrelated to the pacemaker, like sepsis or GI bleed? In summary, when evaluating a patient with a pacemaker, just think of pacer. P is for pacing spikes. Are they present and appropriate? A is for awareness. Is the pacemaker appropriately sensing? C is for capture. Is every spike followed by a beat? E is for ECG. Are there ECG signs of hyperkalemia or occlusion MI? And R is for the rest of the patient, including pacemaker mechanical complications or unrelated emergencies. We're going to end with a quick hit by our expert on physician financial planning, who you probably remember from episode 168 that was entitled Financial Planning for EM Physicians. I asked Dr. Matt Pointer to do a quick hit on paying off debt versus investing. Currently, interest rates and mortgage rates have been on the rise, so this is an especially important topic. Of note, he recorded this before interest rates started going up. Take it away, Dr. Pointer. Let me tell you about Peter. Peter had just finished his residency and was finally earning a decent income. He tried to do the right thing with his money by opening up some investment accounts with a financial advisor, but he felt conflicted, particularly about his student debt. His advisor was telling Peter just to make the minimum payments and invest the rest, because the earlier you start investing, the better. And that made sense, but somehow just didn't feel right to Peter, because in his gut, he just felt like debt was something to be eliminated as quickly as possible, right? So instead of feeling relieved about his financial situation, Peter was actually more stressed out about money than ever. He'd come up against one of the most common conundrums new doctors face. Should I pay off debt or invest? And I get it. Doctors like nice, clear answers, but there just isn't one for this question, and that's what makes it so hard. That doesn't mean that there is no answer, though. Just that the right answer for the advisor might be different than the right answer for Peter. Personal finance is, well, personal. If you look at it mathematically, with few exceptions, as long as the interest rate on your debt is lower than the rate of return you can expect, investments are going to win pretty much every time. There's a little variation depending on how the interest and investment income are taxed, but this is generally true. And by the way, it's the same principles whether you're talking about student debt or a mortgage. But investments being the quote-unquote right answer assumes that your investments are going to perform as expected, and it's also assuming that your first priority is generating as much wealth as possible, and that isn't always the case. If you're risk-averse with investments and debt bothers you, it's completely reasonable to prioritize those loan repayments. One of my favorite financial writers, Morgan Housel, explains this really well. 
He makes the distinction between rational financial decisions and reasonable ones. Choosing investments over paying off low interest debt might be a rational decision by the numbers. But if that just doesn't sit well with you, given your values about money, the reasonable choice might be to pay off debt. And that's okay. Because there are risks either way. The risk of paying off debt rather than investing is that you might be missing out on some opportunities to grow your money. But choosing investments over debt repayment is risky because it's essentially the equivalent of using leverage. Leverage is when you borrow money to invest. And it can boost investment returns when times are good, but it can be devastating when times are tough. Going back to Peter, if he had $100,000 one year ago and chose to invest it in the stock market rather than pay off his debt, that $100,000 might now only be worth about $80,000. Not only that, but he'd still have a big student loan and the interest rate on that loan may have gone up at the same time. That's a triple whammy of badness. Now, it doesn't always happen like this, of course. Historically, the stock market has been a great place for long-term returns, but in any given year, there's about a 25% chance that it will go down rather than up. Stock returns are lumpy, so you just have to make sure that you're in a position to ride out that turbulence. It's just part of the deal with stocks. The good news is that you don't have to choose between investing and paying off debt. You can do both. This is the path that I recommend for most people, and I'll tell you why. First, paying off debt aggressively doesn't just feel good to most people, but it also builds resilience into your financial situation by eliminating those payments as soon as possible. But starting to invest as early as possible at the same time is also hugely beneficial. Not so much for the investment returns, although those are important too, of course, but for the learning experience. If you're paying off debt at the same time as investing, you're going to be working the kinks out of your investing process with smaller amounts of money. It's kind of like a financial clerkship. So that's the second reason. The third reason I'm a fan of this hybrid approach is because when you do pay off that debt, you'll already have everything set up to start putting that money that used to go towards your loans now towards your long-term savings. And that's when the magic really starts to happen, and you'll be well prepared for that task. In Peter's case, he decided to use three quarters of the money that he didn't need for his living expenses for his debt repayments, and one quarter to start investing. Using a simple online calculator, he figured out that this would make him debt-free in five years, which allowed him to stop worrying about money and start to feel really good about the path that he was on. At the five-year mark, not only was he debt-free, but he had five years of investing experience too. After working out the kinks in the first few years, he felt confident and even enthusiastic about having even more money to invest using his well-established plan. So the ideal path out of debt isn't the fastest or the slowest. It's the one that best suits your personality and financial values. In my experience, the best answer for most people is to pay off debt and start investing at the same time. And whatever the ratio is between those things is just fine. All right. So I hope you learned a little bit about bowel prep hyponatremia and the use of hypertonic saline in severe hyponatremia. A little bit about non-convulsive status epilepticus. Remember, the big clues are in the eyes and the response to benzodiazepines. McLaren's handy pacer mnemonic. A bit about Morel-Lavallee lesions, or maybe it's Lavallee as Petro pronounces it. 
a sort of closed degloving injury of the thigh that needs a surgical opinion. And maybe you got inspired to try your hand at wilderness medicine to augment your EM career. Don't forget to head over to emcasesummit.com to pick up your video streaming package of both the 2021 and 2023 summits. If you couldn't make it to the summit this year, no problem. They are there for you to view on your time. There are mountains of gold there. So until next time, take it easy. 